Beyond the, he- Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to Trade for People and Planet, a World Insight special on MC13, the WTO's 13th ministerial conference. I'm Tian Wei, here in Beijing. Currently, China remains the largest consumer of semiconductors, with semiconductors becoming the primary chips shaping the world of AI. Could China and the U.S. hurdle differences? On that and more, I had a conversation with the president and CEO of the U.S. Semiconductor Industry Association on the sideline of MC13. Many do not know why businesses are here. In the middle of uh, the trade negotiations among ministers of trade from all over the world, tell me more about your mission. We, uh, 80% of our customers are overseas, so all the market opening that the WTO has done, all the trade disciplines has put in place is really important for us. The other thing is, well, one of the big secrets to our success is that we have a kind of a breathtaking innovations and which is which is driven by the fact we reinvest so much of our sales into R&D the other important leg of this is that from the beginnings we've been very 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 tied into the global supply chains mm-hmm. and so having uh, the WTO there keeping free trade in place and making it stronger has been absolutely critical for us mm-hmm. more specifically mm-hmm. this time we're here we're very concerned about uh, some of this loose talk about not extending the e-commerce moratorium. Well, a lot of our designs, which are super complex, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our software, a lot of our process data is constantly moving around the world in the supply chains and contemplating that somehow getting hit with tariffs is is pretty rough for us it would be a real real cooling um, uh, chill effect mm-hmm. on our ability to do business around the world on the e-commerce moratorium actually there are a lot of countries that are supporting to go to the extension of that but there are different voices yeah how do you see from an industry association's perspective of the role of wto in this regard the nature of discussion what do yeah. you think is the nature of discussion regarding this First of all, just from a high level, um, we would find it a stunning defeat for the WTO, which is all about kind of making trade easier to somehow reverse course and make trade more difficult with uh, not continuing with, with, the, uh, with the moratorium. Second of all, you know, um, the e-commerce moratorium is good for big companies, it's good for small companies, it's good for developed economies, it's good for developing economies. In fact, um, this group of, of African, um, Caribbean, and Pacific countries, almost 80, have a proposal that includes support for continuing the e-commerce moratorium. We're very excited about that, encouraged about that. We hope that this thing gets across the finish line um, I, uh, in a successful way. I, I strongly feel that uh, this uh, ministerial can't conclude with successfully without the moratorium extended. Some of my colleagues uh, were in a in a in a meeting uh, in Chinese Taipei of the World Semiconductor Council, and that includes SIAs from U.S., mm-hmm. from Japan, from Chinese Taipei, from Europe, from Korea, and from China. Mm-hmm. So CSIA, 
And all these other associations signed a letter to uh, Prime Minister Modi and Indian Trade Minister Goyal saying we need to continue this moratorium. So that just shows how serious we are in advancing this. And the WSC itself, the World Semiconductor Council, is this really unique and wonderful um, constellation of semiconductor associations mm. that has been coming together for decades now uh, to try to solve mutual problems. Mm. We see a lot of populism uh, in the world and sometimes policymakers make use of the excuse of populism um, and the excuse of slogans. How do you see these kind of things are being taken advantage? My view on this, this is um, kind of short-term gains which are limited versus long-term gains which are massive. And uh, if you put um, tariffs on cross-border data flows, well, you capture some revenue in the short term, but in the long term, you make it harder for these, these incredible products and bits of data to get to consumers' hands and to allow them to use them to, to uh, uh, create growth across the economy. We, we worked very hard 10 years ago, and China was actually a, a partner in this effort to expand the Information Technology Agreement, which is the hard good side of tech. And we ran into the same problem. We ran into countries, particularly smaller countries, that were very focused on the short term and worried about revenue loss from giving up tariffs and not thinking about, well, wait a minute, we get all these high-tech products in our economy that is going to help us grow the economy in healthcare and financial services. For the long term, obviously much bigger benefits, harder to measure, and in the short term, you can actually measure, measure the foregone tariffs. So that's, the, I, I think, the key tension here is, are you thinking short term or are you thinking long term? Mm. The other thing about your industry is uh, we see the industrial policies that different countries are putting on the sector. It is one of the most crucial. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say for future cooperation, you could also say for future competition. What is the picture of industrial policy in your sector? Yeah. How do you see that? You know, for, for a long, long time, our federal government wasn't in the game of offering incentives. And as a result, our chip manufacturing moved offshore quite substantially in the last 30 years. And now roughly 75% of all chip manufacturing is happening in, in East Asia. Mm -hmm. That's an over-concentration. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what the Chips and Science Act is aimed to do is not bring everything back, not even near everything, but bring back more to make us less, less vulnerable if there's some kind of seismic disturbance, some, some kind of uh, another pandemic so that we're a little bit more secure. And, you know, we live in an imperfect world yeah. and countries have been offering subsidies for years and years and years in our sector, targeted subsidies, and our government has not. At least now we're in the race, the, the playing field is more level, and we feel that um, as, as an industry that, that this was very necessary. You suggested, sir, that um, you are not there to occupy the market or to dominate the market, quote-unquote, um, but rather to a degree uh, that to what you just explained. But that is a very interesting and intricate 
balance to take. If you look at what ha what's happened to our industry in 1990, 37% of the world's semiconductors were produced, manufactured on U.S. shores. Mm -hmm. Now it's down to 10%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's what's the perfect number? Well, we got to stop the decline. We got to turn the corner and start coming back up. And that's that's what the Chips and Science Act is mm -hmm. going to help do. And already we have over $200 billion in private sector commitments mm -hmm. to build more facilities on U.S. shores. Mm -hmm. This is not about bringing everything back. It's about taking some vulnerability out of the mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. It's about spreading the risk out uh, more, more for, across more ge geographies. And, you know, the, the pandemic kind of... Uh, it got everyone understanding what chips were, but it, it also got us thinking about where our, our vulnerabilities were, and it was, it got people understanding that, you know, it, in, at least in manufacturing, there's too much over-concentration of manufacturing in East Asia. Mm. On the one hand, almost all national governments now understand the importance of chips, semiconductors, and they want to put incentives or encouraging measures or whatever you say, uh, whatever you term it, uh, to the industry in their own countries. So that might be a pro for the industry. But on the other hand, the complexity of geopolitics related to this also put your industry so much torn in so many different places in the world. And thinking about a global company that have to handle this, how do you see these uh, quite mixed up circumstances? Most solutions are imperfect, mm -hmm. and we're not going to get the balance perfect, but I think we're going to get in a better place than we were. The fact that we're having uh, so many of our companies um, making commitments to get more manufacturing on U.S. shores, again, but our companies are also making commitments to put manufacturing in Germany, to put manufacturing in Singapore, mm -hmm different places around the world. And it's again, if you just look at it, it's spreading the risk out. The other thing is about the latest technologies. It's taking place as a, as a lightning speed, if I could use that analogy. Yeah, especially probably the, faster than that. And therefore, what does this industry mean? I mean, your sector. We did, in a very productive way, was expanding the um, the information technology agreement and that's that's eliminating tariffs on a whole range of, of tech products mm -hmm. and uh, we did that successfully uh, in 2015 it was about a four or five year negotiation mm -hmm. china was a big part of that uh, sometimes there was some tough discussions but at the end of the day we all came together and we figured this out mm -hmm. and uh, it it was the kind of first and only market access market expansion agreement that the wto was able to successfully do mm -hmm. since it was founded. Mm -hmm. And we did it with, with the ITA. And it, 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 with our industry, there's, there's just, as you mentioned, there's just lightning speed, innovation, all sorts of new products. And so that was almost 10 years ago. It's time to do it again. We have all sorts of new products coming, you know, coming online. Last time we, we included all sorts of medical devices. Mm -hmm life-saving medical devices, and there's all sorts of other things we can put in an ITA-3, mm -hmm. so we would like to make the next step to recognize the innovation in our, in our industry mm -hmm. and do an ITA-3. And, mm -hmm. and so I think the days of these big singular undertakings in the WTO are over. 
We have to do plurilateral agreements. We have to take smaller bites of the apple. And I do think that one of the things that WTO needs to do, focus on things it can get done, show value to the members so that when the members are talking to people, decision makers in their capitals, that they can show the value proposition of the, of the WTO. So I think an ITA3 would be a, a really important step forward. Mm. Also about your industry is the amount of uh, um, manufacturing capacity that's actually needed in order to uh, support all these Great kind of question. latest innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So I really want to know how you are looking at the potential, you know, how, what are you researching about in order to understand the potential? You know, one thing that we look at a lot in our industry is projections for growth. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of projections out, out there saying that our industry, which is, I don't know, 560, 570, billion today will grow to uh, one trillion by 2030. Mm -hmm. Driven by AI, driven by Internet of Things, driven by 6G, yeah. uh, driven by the automotive sector, electric, electric vehicles which have thousands and thousands of chips in them. Mm -hmm. So we know we're on a kind of a almost a hockey stick slope up in terms of our growth, <clears throat> but it takes two to four years to get manufacturing capacity in place. And that's why you're seeing such a flurry of activity among the chip industry leadership to figure out where to put that capacity so that we can get the shovels in the ground and get the production in place to meet the, the mountain of, of demand coming our way. Do you see there's enough diversity of companies that are doing that? You know, there's been a lot of consolidation in our, in our industry. And the reason for that is that um, to survive in our industry, you need scale. You need to be big, uh, particularly when it comes to the high-end, the chips. And that's why the most high-end chips are only produced in, produced in a, few, a few countries, mm -hmm. a few economies. And, um, and I doubt that is gonna change. But there are analog chips, the chips that uh, turn the, the analog, the, the real world into the digital world, lots of sensors on cars. Right. The, the price of entry for those is a lot cheaper. It's not 10 or $20 billion for a fab. It's one to three to $5 billion. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of more opportunities for those kinds of fabs to be spread more widely, not right. just among like the three or four economies. Mm -hmm. and, and so, um, so that, that's, that's all underway right now. And, mm -hmm. and um, we're, we're in a massive kind of build phase. And I suspect once we get through this massive build phase, we'll move into another one. That's my exclusive interview with President and CEO of the U.S. Semiconductor Industry Association. Coming up on the program, trade policies are crucial to all businesses around the world. No one knows this better than the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce, John Denton. Coming up your way next. Find the Beijing Hour at precisely 6 p.m. Beijing time. We meet you on podcast and on air every weekday. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. Welcome back to World Inside Special, Trade for People and Planet. MC13, the WTO 13th Ministerial Conference, is taking place in the world of fragmentation and complex geopolitics. Trade organizations are conveying to policymakers that there needs to be more cooperation and predictability. 
at this year's WTO 13th Ministerial Conference, I had a conversation with John Dunton, the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. And here is our conversation. It's good to see you here with your uh, title of ICC because you are here in order to link the businesses uh, with government leaders that are now in negotiation on MC13. How is that working so far? Is it efficient communication? Because of who we are, we're too big to ignore. So you think about the ICC. We're more than 100 years old. Yeah. Uh, we're a not-for-profit, an institution devoted to maintenance of effective economic settings to allow the private sector to function and help uh, development and therefore help communities and help families build their lives. We're in uh, almost 170 countries, 70% in the global south. So we're a significant uh, uh, stakeholder, I think, in uh, yeah. an effective uh, curation. So governments do listen to us um, and they listen to us not because not just because of who we are and what we stand for, is because we bring ideas to the table. What are some of the ideas that you brought to the table this time particularly? Well, there's a couple. There's a couple of positive and there's a couple of warnings. Um, the positive is really around how to go about the process of reform. Uh, let's face it, uh, Jan, uh, uh, at MC12 two years ago, they committed to a process of reform um, from a private sector point of view when you commit to something, you do it. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to help them do what they committed to. Now, they've actually had a lot of discussions uh, between MC12 and MC13, yeah. but we still don't have a credible roadmap. Um, so as I said to them, and as we would say, we actually written to them, and we've published a, uh, a document on roadmap for reform from the, w, from the ICC for WTO. Mm -hmm. First thing you've got to do is work out what you stand for. Uh, there's much, not much point reforming Blamange. What is it you actually stand for? So a clear reaffirmation, which is a very powerful political signal of the fundamental principles that underpin the WTO and your reaffirmation of your support for open markets, free exchange of goods and services, and now data across borders is critical, I think, to building any reform. And the other piece is you just the, can't reform. The basic principle shouldn't be thrown out of the window, right? Yeah, but the basic principles should be easy to agree to. But interestingly, they're even struggling to agree to that at the moment. That tells you a little bit about, I know you want to talk about geopolitics, but the geopolitical situation. Um, the other element is you just can't reform bits of it. You actually have to look at the, the WTO as a whole. Mm -hmm. And it's got three important pillars. And the important thing of reform then is not reform for reform's sake. It's reformed to ensure that the uh, WTO is effective and efficient in the context in which it operates, which is the 21st century, which is 2023, which is a world which is underpinned by digital economy functioning, new technology uh, in informing the way in which business, business operates. You know, the power of China as an economic force, the, um, the recalibration of geoeconomics, all these sorts of things, they need to be, it needs to be better understood in the context of reforming the three pillars. So around negotiations, around dispute settlement, mm -hmm. around the level of transparency required to actually oversee and make certain that people are doing what they said they're going to do, all those mm -hmm. sorts of things, they all need to be reformed. It is the 24, uh, 2024 that we're talking about. There is a more complex backdrop, uh, WTO today, compared to the time when it was born. 
That was the honeymoon of free trade when it was born. And right now you see geopolitics, of course, geoeconomics, fragmentation, all these words. That, and as a result, uh, industrial policies that are put out by different governments from developing to developed economies. And you also see um, very different approaches of understanding almost the same thing. So, uh, John, when you are trying to work out this agenda that you have, how do you articulate the circumstances that we're in to the decision makers? Well, maybe I'll give you another window to think about the ICC through. So, I said before that we're in almost 170 countries. Um, we are actually the world's largest second-track diplomatic network. We are also ourselves a very large and significant multilateral platform. Yes. And guess what? We actually function. Mm. We work as a multilateral platform and we achieve outcomes. We're able to come to a consensus through the organisation, which, by the way, does not mean everyone votes. It means people accept, based on the principles we operate under, that this is the best way to go. And that is the consensus. We build a consensus. We're not reduced to one. Uh, what that also tells you is, is that the principles that guide us are principles that are accepted by all. So when I said before that it's critical for the reform of the WTO to actually agree up front on what the principles are, that is really important. So when we talk to leaders, we're not talking as some trade association or a group that represents, you know, one country's perspective. We're talking as another multilateral organisation and actually saying to them, if you're actually able to agree upon principles in the context, so, you know, we have ICCs in Syria, we have ICCs in Iran, we have ICCs in the US, you know, we have, we have ICC in Israel, and yet we're all able to sit at the same table and actually agree upon things because we agree upon the principles. We're not here to discuss the geopolitical situation, we're here to talk about economics, economic growth, and the importance of enabling the private sector to function to drive that. And that's what you have to keep focused on. Yes, there's, a lot, there's always a lot of things swirling around, but focus on the issue at hand. The issue at hand at the WTO this year is actually not Russia-Ukraine. It's not uh, the Gaza dispute. Mm -hmm. It's actually how do we ensure a functioning multilateral trading system, right. which is a public good available to the whole world and has improved the prospects for economic opportunity mm -hmm. in the poorest nations. And actually that is something that could be under threat. That's what you have to keep focused on. John, on the other hand, there is the issue of uh, technologies. As you earlier illustrated already, technologies are developing so fast and they can be great tools, while at the same time, there can be big problems if the literacy of understanding these technologies and their impact is much lagging behind the technologies themselves. Well, that's only a matter of fact uh, for our lives, but on the other hand, there needs to be efforts made. Now, how do you see uh, WTO is working on that, both the organization itself and also its members in their communications. And what I, what I, what, what I found interesting was um, the um, transformation of the WTO, which Dr. Ngozi is also leading as an organization. So one of the 
important questions for any organization, even an international organization, is how are you embracing new technology? And I think that's quite interesting that um, one of the gaps that the WTO as an organization is confronting is its ability to adapt to and embrace and frankly take risks with new technology. And that will also involve how do you use AI. But more broadly, the issue then is how does the WTO enable, uh, I think, the um, access to and engagement with new forms of technology like artificial intelligence on a global basis. And that goes to the way in which data is able to be transferred from economy to economy. You know, do we want to enable that? What are the rules around that? That's my conversation with John Denton, the Secretary General of ICC, one of the largest trading organizations in the world. And that's all the time we have for today, our special program, Trade for People and Planet. If you'd like to know more, search World Inside to check out our YouTube channel and also follow us on X and Facebook. I'm Tian Wei. On behalf of my team, thanks for being with us. Bye for now.